Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 8. Last week, I wrapped up at the end of Exodus Chapter 34, finishing the chapters where God details the blueprints for the tabernacle and all of its fixtures. I also covered when the Israelites created the golden calf and both God and Moses' reactions. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing Exodus chapters 35 through 40, which, spoiler alert, is the end of the book. So let's get started. Chapter 35 begins with Moses relaying to the Israelites the importance of the Sabbath. And he makes a very simple but powerful point. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. He goes on to say that they should not even kindle any fire in all of their dwellings on the Sabbath day. In paraphrase. And considering that fire provided both heat during the cold desert nights and the ability to cook their food, the straightforward understanding of his order was not to do any work on that seventh day. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Next, Moses gets the people busy building the tabernacle. He starts by soliciting the people for donations of the necessary materials. Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Let whoever is of generous heart bring the Lord's offering, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine linen goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance incense, and onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and the breastpiece, end quote. As you would correctly suspect, that's just about everything necessary to build, sew, hammer, and mold all that God had specified in the previous several chapters. Moses then calls upon the skillful to come forward to build the lot, and he lists it all, meaning everything to be built. I'll spare you the list, as you've heard it over the past few episodes. After this, we're told of the people's response. Then all the congregation of the Israelites withdrew from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and brought the Lord's offering to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the sacred vestments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and pendants, all sorts of gold objects, everyone bringing an offering of gold to the Lord. Now, to be clear, the text continues in the same manner to describe all the other materials brought by the people, the fabric, leather, precious stones, spices, all of it, all that was necessary to carry out God's plan. The chapter concludes with a repeat of what God told Moses about the two men in charge of the construction, this time with Moses repeating it to the people. Bizalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and Oholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And with that, the chapter concludes. 
Now, I hope he gave the two men a heads up so that they weren't completely surprised. Chapter 36 begins with the story of the two designated men and how the actual building was constructed. The two men, along with general laborers, began the construction with the offerings from the people. And, in short order, the people brought much more material than was necessary. So much so that the men, via Moses, asked the people to stop with the offerings. Certainly a good problem to have. The remainder of the chapter describes in great detail how the men and their workforce built the tabernacle to the exact specifications of God. In fact, the specifications are listed out in excruciating detail. Exactly, exactly as they had been specified. More detail here in the building of the building than in the creation of all to be found above, below, and in all of creation. In a historical context, details like this are viewed as adding credibility. Anyway, the chapter wraps up while centered on the tabernacle. Chapter 37 does the same as 36, except covering the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread of the presence, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the blending of holy anointing oil and the holy incense. And, just like the tabernacle, these were done to God's exacting specifications. While I will be spending much more time diving into the history of these items later, just as a teaser, I'll cover what is said about the Ark. I've got a little time to kill this episode, and it's interesting, from the New Revised Standard Version. Bezalel made the Ark of acacia wood. It was two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. He cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. He made poles of acacia wood, and overlaid them with gold. He put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, to carry the ark. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of hammered gold. At the two ends of the mercy seat he made them. One cherub at the one end, and one cherub at the other end. Of one piece was the mercy seat. He made the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were turned towards the mercy seat. End quote. Now, I doubt if any of you remember the conversion of cubits to feet or meters that I detailed in the flood story. So, while I know I'm repeating myself, just treat it as new material. A cubit is about one and a half feet, or just under half a meter. This would make the ark, without its top, or mercy seat, about three and three quarters feet, or just under one and a half meters long. Twenty-seven inches are just under seventy centimeters wide, and the same height, which to me at least, is surprisingly small. I tried to find a few things of comparable size, to help you envision it, and this is what I came up with. 
It would be too big, even without its lid, to check his baggage on a North American airline. Well, that is without paying the oversized fee. It's larger than a bale of hay, the smaller rectangular bells, not the giant round ones. But let's see if I can make it a little more modern than hay bells. It's bigger than a nightstand, but smaller than a dresser. In fact, I went all throughout my house trying to find an analog of about the right size. The closest I found was a television stand from Ikea. Comparable in size, not even close in purpose. Oh, and the TV stand isn't covered in gold. Remember, it's from Ikea. It's just covered in a plastic film made to resemble wood grain. Not even veneer. Anyway. I then searched Google Images for a few frames from the Indiana Jones movie. And judging what I think to be the size of the actors, the prop in the movie seems reasonably close. I'm not going to post these copyright images, but if you can download a podcast, you can search Google. And you may stumble upon where sometimes the prop version is put on display with other movie props. It's interesting to see God's words formed into reproductions of so very historical artifacts. And that's probably enough of a sidebar. Back to the text. The table of the bread of the presence measured two cubits long, one cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. So, in modern measurements, three feet are one meter long, one and a half feet are half a meter wide, and 27 inches are 70 centimeters high. The size of a small, but relatively tall coffee table, at least in the U.S., the lampstand and all of its fixtures were made of a talent of pure gold. Which, of course, begs the question, how large is a talent? Well, the answer to that question isn't as simple as how large a cubit is. A talent weighed, yes, it's a measurement of mass, anywhere from a low of about 44 to a high of about 110 pounds. So in the metric system, 20 to 50 kilograms. As of the writing of this episode in December 2017, the price of gold is about 1260 US dollars per troy ounce, which in modern terms means that the lampstand, along with its fixtures, would be worth anywhere from about 800,000 to just north of 2 million US dollars. That's a serious candle holder. And what did you get for that price? There were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals on the other branch, and so on for the six branches going out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyxes and petals. There was a calyx of one piece with it under the first pair of branches, a calyx of one piece with it under the next pair of branches, and a calyx of one piece with it under the last pair of branches. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it, 
the whole of it one hammered piece of pure gold, its seven lamps and its snuffers and its trays of pure gold, end quote. Which, given all the detail, I'm having a hard time envisioning. So, in this case, I'll post a picture of a reproduction on the podcast Facebook page. But just imagine the menorah associated with Hanukkah, adorned with blossoming flowers. Finally, the altar of incense was one cubit long and the same width, so its footprint was a square 18 inches or about half a meter on each side. It was two cubits high, so about three feet or one meter. The text, unlike what was described for the previous pieces, wasn't extremely descriptive of the altar's design, except that it had horns on it probably in each of the four corners. And when I say horns, think of an extended crown molding. It, too, was of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold and was carried by acacia wood poles. So, now we have the ark, the table of the bread of the presence, the altar of incense, all to be carried with gold-covered wood poles. And why would this be? Well, these items were meant for God and could not be soiled by having a sinful man touch it. These things were holy, which has always bore great meaning, and even more so in the Old Testament. In chapter 37, we're given close to 700 words describing the ark, table, lampstand, and altar. And the chapter ends with the mixing of the holy anointing oil and incense, And for this, we get 17 words in one verse which reads, He made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense, blended as by the perfumer. Seriously concise. But I think the point had been made. God ordered things to be made to exacting specifications, and Moses ensured they were. Which brings me to chapter 38. In the beginning, the altar of burnt offering is built, and, like you should be able to guess by now, it too was constructed exactly to God's specifications. It was five cubits long and five cubits wide. It was square and three cubits high, so about seven and a half feet on each side, square, and four and a half feet high. In metric terms, this makes it two and a third meters square and just under a meter and a half tall. It also had horns on the corners and was made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. The text reads that it was hollow on the inside. My interpretation is that it was built like a box with walls. That way, the livestock to be sacrificed could be led in and the door closed behind them essentially a very small pen. And, considering it was large and covered in bronze, it was also extremely heavy. So having it hollowed decreased the weight and made it somewhat easier to transport. The basin was also made of bronze and apparently had no wood core as it was not listed. So, just solid bronze, heavy. We are next given a very long paragraph on the construction of the courtyard for the tabernacle, almost an exact repeat of God's instructions. 
The overall courtyard measured 100 by 50 cubits, so 150 by 75 feet, or 46 by 23 meters. In the U.S., that's about a quarter of an acre. It's also about a quarter of the size of a U.S. football field, excluding the end zones. So, imagine the length from the goal line to the 50-yard line, and half as wide as the field. That was the size of the tabernacle's courtyard, all enclosed in fine linen. And that's also a bit of information you probably didn't expect today. A U.S. football field without end zones is slightly larger than an acre. Back to the text. Next, we are told that the tabernacle itself was built to God's exact specs. This passage, instead of giving us the measurements, tells us the quantities of gold, silver, and bronze used in its construction. 29 talents and 730 shekels of gold, to be exact. And for clarity, a talent had, it is thought, 3,600 shekels. So, converting to decimals yields 29.2 talents. And, the same valuation of gold mentioned earlier tells me the gold in the tabernacle would be valued somewhere between 23 and 59 million U.S. dollars. Also, that is between about 1,300 and 3,200 pounds of gold, which equates to between 600 and 1,500 kilograms. That's a serious amount, and all dependent on how large a talent is. The tabernacle also contained 100.5 talents of silver. Right now, silver is valued just over 16 U.S. dollars per ounce, so the quantity used in the tabernacle would have an overall value between 1 and 2.6 million U.S. dollars, and would weigh between 4,400 and 11,000 pounds of silver, or between 2,000 and 5,000 kilograms. And finally, there is the bronze, 70.7 talents to be exact. Well, bronze is cheap, at least today, valued at around 12 U.S. cents per ounce. It's probably a safe assumption it wasn't anywhere near that inexpensive then. It was, after all, the Bronze Age. Anyway, the bronze would be valued between 5 and 14,000 US dollars today. It may be cheap, but the 70 or so talents were between 3,000 and 8,000 pounds, or 1,400 and 3,500 kilograms. That's a lot of metal. So much so that in modern terms, just the metal used in the tabernacle weighed between about 9,000 and 22,000 pounds, or 4,000 and 10,000 kilograms. Heavy metal indeed. And when you add up the gold, silver, and bronze, you get a value between about 25 and 62 million U.S. dollars. And this doesn't even include the fine linen. This is what the Israelites brought from their own personal stores. And, remember, we were told they had more, all taken, well, really given, by the Egyptians as they were leaving. Chapter 38 ends with the description of the tabernacle's construction. Chapter 39 spends over 700 words describing the sewing of the priest's garments 
and, like everything else, they were done exactly as God had described. Precious metals and stones, colorful yarns, ephod, breastpiece, robe, tunic, and rosette. All as required. The last part of chapter 39 tells us that the Israelites completed all the work as detailed by God, and the text lists everything that was completed. Everything. They then presented it to Moses, who blessed them, and with that, the chapter ends. Which brings me to chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus. God speaks to Moses and tells him that on the first day of the first month, he will set up the tabernacle. God also directs him that at that time, he is to install everything else that was built. And he goes into great detail concerning the physical location of each item within either the tabernacle or the courtyard. He is then to take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture, so that it shall become holy. The oil is also used to anoint the altar of burnt offering and the basin. After the building, furniture, and fixtures are anointed, he is to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then Aaron is to don the sacred vestments, and Moses is to anoint and consecrate him. When this is complete, he will be allowed to serve as God's priest. Aaron's sons are to dress in the tunics and then be anointed by Moses. And with that, they too can serve as priests. In fact, the text tells us that once the process is complete, their anointing shall admit them to the perpetual priesthood throughout all generations to come. Of course, Moses does as he is commanded. And in the first month of the second year, so one year after their release from captivity, the tabernacle is erected. And, like everything else, the text goes into great detail concerning the erection and installation of everything. The chapter ends with a description of what was seen when God was with them, from the text. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all of the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. End quote. And with that, the chapter and therefore the book ends. And obviously, a good place to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the proposed history of the writing of the book itself. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please find your way to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. 
You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.